0: Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ.
1: That rumbling is no sound effect. It comes from dramatic footage taken in 2008 of over 75 minutes of Greenland's Ilulissat Glacier calving. That is, massive chunks of ice breaking apart, turning over and plunging into the sea. The footage is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest glacial calving event ever filmed. just how big was this event? Something the size of the entirety of lower Manhattan, New York, except that the buildings of ice were two and three times taller than any man-made skyscraper. You have probably by now seen a few dramatic pictures of glaciers breaking apart and plunging into the surrounding water. And you have likely heard scientists say that the breakup of these glaciers is definitive proof that global warming and climate change is a real issue of our time. There is absolutely no question that the Earth is a very environmentally and geologically active planet. From melting glaciers to active volcanoes, tornadoes, tsunamis, floods, and snowstorms, there is never a dull moment on our terrestrial homes. And there is no disagreement among scientists today that the Earth has quite a history written in the rocks, ice sheets, glaciers, craters, and fossils. But what is the best way to know precisely what the history of our planet really is? Is the present a key to the past? Is the past a key to the present? How are we to read the records left to us in the texts of nature? On the one hand, some scientists suggest that the Earth is a fragile biosphere and can easily be set off in catastrophic directions by the polluting activities of human beings. But on the other hand, some scientists say that the Earth isn't as fragile and helplessly impacted by our propensity to pollute our environment. While there is no question glaciers are indeed melting, questions do remain as to how best to interpret that particular activity, as well as many other issues related to climate science. If you follow the headlines about climate science, you quickly realize that there is a moral component to the issue with impassioned and often caustic rhetoric employed by people on both sides. What, for example, killed the dinosaurs? How many ice ages have there been? Was there a global flood? What dug out the Grand Canyon? How and why did the continents split apart? If you question the dominant scientific paradigm about these issues, many are quick to denounce you as a science denier or worse. One's perspective on climate science will be profoundly impacted by whether or not you believe that, quote, "...in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth," end quote. Does God uphold our planet and sustain its fixed laws? Or will our continued polluting of the atmosphere enact global catastrophic consequences?" And if God really does not exist, from where comes the moral imperative about being good stewards of the planet? On this special two-part episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss the underlying scientific assumptions about climate change with a physicist from the Institute for Creation Research, Dr. Jake Hebert III, who helps us unpack theories about Earth's history that have led to current climate science conclusions. We examine evidence for a worldwide flood, look into the assumptions about past ice ages, and discuss evidence from around the world that suggests current scientific theories about the history of our planet may not be entirely correct. As we begin our discussion, Jake tells us a little bit about himself and the Institute for Creation Research located here in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Jake Hebert III.
0: Well, uh, my name is Jake Hebert. Uh, I'm a physicist and a research associate uh, at the Institute for Creation Research. And uh, I've been interested in creation and, and Christian apologetics for a long time. And it is really my dream job to be working here at the Institute for Creation Research. We're a Christian think tank that deals with the origins issue, uh, You know, especially um, things like the age of the earth. Uh, the Genesis flood, uh, the days of creation, and we hold to a literal six-day creation. We think that's what the Bible clearly teaches, and we think that when the science is done well and done correctly, it confirms that. We've got a geologist, we've got a physicist, we've got a geneticist, uh, we got someone with expertise in uh, biopaleochemistry, um, so we, we, you know, we do cover a lot of different areas.
1: Uh, so, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, the groundwork where your offices is the the museum and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, we have a discovery center that we opened a while back, and we're very proud of it. Uh, it's it's really really nice, and it's a good place to come with your family uh, for a day trip. Um, but we've got we've got a planetarium. We have three planetarium shows, one of which is in three D. Uh, we've got an Ice Age theater, we've got animatronic dinosaurs, and basically uh, this Discovery Center is what we call it. It's there to answer questions that people have about creation and genesis and, uh, and the origins issue.
1: Fantastic. Now, Jake, what is your, what is your particular scientific background? What is your um, education background and, and what do you do right now at ICR?
0: Well, uh, my background's in physics. Uh, I've got my BS in physics from Lamar University in, in Beaumont, Texas, and then I got my master's from Texas A&M, also in physics, and then I drifted around for a while, uh, taught, taught at a little bit at the high school level and mainly at the college level, and then I came back to school uh, at the University of Texas at Dallas in 2007, and then got my Ph.D., uh, working for someone who is doing cutting edge research on the possible connection between solar activity, cosmic rays and weather and climate. And I truly believe uh, it was God's will that I ended up working for this man. Uh, I don't think it was a coincidence because uh, the stuff that he's done it has some relevance uh, some relevance to what I'm doing even right now. Uh, and so it was it it was uh, a lot of work, but I'm very glad that I worked for that professor.
1: So before we get into your expertise, your area of expertise, Jake, I want you to address this uh, this modern myth that science and Christianity are incompatible. As you say in your book, uh, you mentioned that uh, you know your religious beliefs, you talk about uh, people's religious beliefs informing, science but uh, you know as you point out atheism or atheists hold religious beliefs they hold beliefs about God about religion uh, and and that does definitely influence uh, science as well and so um, talk a bit about this because you're obviously with your background and experience you're you're well versed in the scientific paradigms of modern earth science from a secular standpoint. Um, So just kind of unpack your experience with with science and Christianity and and their, uh, their ultimate compatibility.
0: Well, I'll tell you this. Like I said, my background was in physics, and Wayne has a background in physics. And just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, the subject of evolution almost never comes up in physics, which is like the hardest of the physical sciences. So that right there ought to tell you something. Okay, it almost never comes up except when you get into maybe cosmology or or something like that. But the subject, it practically never came up all the time that I was an undergraduate or even a graduate student. And so that right there, I think, tells you that that's a hint that evolution may not really be science.
2: You're right about this in physics, but even though, okay, so I used to teach in a, a Christian high school, for a while, this was in Kansas, but not in Texas, but, and uh, when I, after I got my master's degree, I was trying to get a teaching position again, so I was hoping to teach, yeah you know, like in a community college, or maybe some other high school that would have a good college prep program, and I wanted to teach physics, and uh, so there was a particular interview I had where they, they were kind of uncomfortable with just the fact of, um Not really with my physics background, but with just the fact that I had taught at a Christian Christian school, they were kind of um, not really yeah. comfortable with with me for some reason, even though I had a, a a degree, a master's in physics from a secular university.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it does happen. I'm not saying there isn't discrimination or. Prejudice, but just from the from my personal experience, um, it had very little to do with the actual work that we do.
2: Yes, I agree. And, with and frankly, you. I, agree I think that's true
0: for you too, Wayne. Yeah. I mean, you know, they may have been prejudiced against you, but it's not because of the quality of your work. Or, or anything like that. It's just, it's just, it's a it's a religious issue. That's really what it is. Yeah, I agree. Let me just say this. You know, the, the, I, you, you talked about the idea that uh, Christians are out of touch uh, with modern scientific inquiry, it, and especially those of us who hold to a, a literal six-day creation. And And I can tell you from my experience, we don't have that luxury, okay? We're in the minority, so we have to be well-versed on the secular literature. Uh, we have to know what they're saying. We don't have the option or the luxury of just ignoring what they're doing. And so, mo- a lot of my time is spent reading the secular literature, and uh, my research uh, has been primarily um, dealing with the ice age and and the creation. Mo- we've got a biblical creation model for the ice age that is very strong, and we've had it for about thirty years now. Uh, Michael Ord, who was a former meteorologist for the National Weather Service, he did a lot of work in this area, and so did Dr. Larry Vardaman, who used to work here at ICR, and I'm sort of extending the work that they've done, and um, most of the hardcore research that I've done in my career is in one way or another climate-related. I don't claim to be a climatologist or a meteorologist, but the work that I've done has very much relevance to the issue of climate change. And um, one area that I spent a lot of time looking into was the alleged evidence for the secular ice age theory. And I found that it was seriously wanting. And uh, and so that's something I spent quite a bit of time on and where I had to be really well-versed in the literature to do that.
1: And so it seems like when you talk about climate change today, a very hot topic that has a deep moral implications. Yes. I mean if you're on social media you can see this most specifically everybody has an opinion about climate change you mentioned in your book uh, the epithet of climate deniers and science deniers. Right. But this I think this this issue in our culture today shows very clearly that there is a moral component to talking about earth's history that boils down to a specific view about whether or not god exists whether or not the bible is true that uh, if you go back to Al Gore, I can remember after he shortly after he lost the presidency, he went on a, a basically a crusade of global warming, and uh, it hasn't abated. This idea that there's a there are moral implications for how we treat the environment, and um, so I think it emphasizes exactly what you say in your book that that because of this moral component, people people are upset about this one way or the other. There's a there's a passion and uh, a very Heated and passionate rhetoric going back and forth about uh, climate change, the global warming, the uh, and and you tie this so wonderfully, though, together um, in your book. It makes it clear, of course, there's a moral foundation. Of course, this goes back to, you know, what is the earth? Why is it here? What's it for? What does it do? But as you say, this all is based upon having a right view of Earth's history correct
0: yes that th- this is what's a little bit different about my book it, it's entitled the ice age and climate change a uh, creation perspective and and my the main point that i'm trying to drive home in this book is that if you're going to understand the issue of climate change correctly you have got to have a correct view of earth history and and what you believe about the past has dr- a dramatic effect on what you believe about the future and I'm saying that the creation model does a far better job of explaining uh, the geophysical data than does the secular model. And I'm, I'm saying that the secular model is simply wrong, and therefore, because their model is wrong, the conclusions that they're drawing about climate change are wrong. And, and that's the big point uh, I make in the book. In fact, I don't even really make a big super big deal about what I think about climate change personally. I briefly addressed that, but my, the key point, though, is that you've got to, you've, you know, if you're going to understand this issue correctly and not draw erroneous conclusions, you've got to take Genesis seriously, and, and if you don't, and, and I, I see this a lot, I see this, there are Christians out there that I think are reaching incorrect conclusions because they don't take Genesis seriously.
2: Let's go back to uh, uh, expand that a little bit about what your view of of the world is. You know, God created it a good world for our people to live in, for all living things. And so um, the way Genesis describes the the created earth in the beginning sounds a little different than today. Would you agree?
0: Yes. I mean, the Bible says it was very good. Uh uh, the animals were vegetarians uh, so were Adam and Eve um, there wasn't there was there wasn't any death uh, certainly no human death but I think if you carefully read Genesis and the implications of what's stated there as well as in Romans chapter 8 I don't think there was no animal death either and it was a very different world I think the climate back then was uh, we didn't have severe weather uh, I, I really doubt that we had large ice sheets um, I don't want to be too dogmatic about that, but I, I really doubt that there were they existed in the pre-flood world, uh, or even in the pre-fall world. But we know that that original creation was very good. Uh, but then, is when Adam sinned, bad things started to happen. You started to get um, thorns and thistles, and and um, death, and uh, and and uh, things just gradually got worse. And I think with the flood. Uh, What we consider natural evil, things like volcanoes and earthquakes and things, I think that became much worse uh, because I would argue that a lot of what we're experiencing today is the after effects of the flood.
1: You you introduce a lot of problems with a long scale time over the earth in relation to the ice age. I found it fascinating because in my mind it was always confusing. It always has been Uh, the the idea of multiple ice ages over hundreds of thousands or, or millions of years and from what i've read so far it seems to say that you're you're suggesting the ice age was something that that came after the flood it was a singular ice age is that correct and so there wasn't there weren't to be clear there weren't your model is suggesting that there was just one ice age not not a multitude of
0: ice ages correct that's absolutely correct uh, the evidence for multiple ice ages is very very weak uh, and, and there's kind of two parts to this. Uh, you know, there, there is the secular ice age model, which is called the Milankovic or Astronomical Ice Age Theory. It's named after a Serbian scientist who did a lot of work in this area. But basically, that theory posits uh, that over tens of thousands of years, there are changes in the Earth's orbital and rotational motions, and that changes the way the sunlight falls on the Earth. And so that's thought to control the timing of ice ages. Uh, and they've applied that. It's a long story, but basically they, once they convinced themselves that that theory was correct, and I would argue the evidence for the theory is very weak. That's something I spent a lot of time on. But once they convinced themselves the theory was correct, they used the theory to assign ages to chemical wiggles in deep sea sediment cores. And they took about 57 of those sediment cores, and they combined them into what they call into what they call a stack—just this big composite set of chemical wiggles that have been dated using the Milankovitch ice age theory. Well, if you look at the wiggles that are by, that dated by the Milankovitch theory, are less than 2.6 million years old which corresponds to the Pleistocene, you know, the the, the the Pleistocene epoch, guess how many ice age wiggles there are? There's 50, uh, roughly 50. You know, you have these wiggle cycles. Those chemical wiggles, they think, are a climate indicator. They think that you can tell how much ice was on the planet from those those chemical wiggles in the sediment cores. And so when you have a very high value of something they call the oxygen isotope value, they think that's the coldest part of an ice age. And then when you have a lower value, it's supposed to be the the, the warmest part or, or it's supposed to be a warm period. And so they they just counted up the wiggle cycles. There's about 50 of them. And so therefore, they say there were 50 Pleistocene ice ages <laughs> or, wow. or what they call glacial interviews. It's not based on anything stronger than that. Uh, wow. Even if you believe there were multiple ice ages, geological evidence for those multiple ice ages is going to be scant because the, pre- the evidence for the previous ice ages, you know, glacial deposits and things like that, they're going to get bulldozed by the ice sheets from the next ice age. And so you're not going to have strong geological evidence for multiple ice ages, even if you believe that they occurred. And so the, the, the evidence for those Pleistocene ice ages is, is extremely weak. Now, they also think there have been some ice ages in Earth's distant past. You know, they have something called snowball Earth. Where they think the entire Earth was pretty much frozen. Now, they think there were multiple ice ages hundreds of millions of years ago. But the, the evidence for that is also weak as well. Uh, the reason they say that is you, is when glaciers advance, they have rocks embedded in the ice, And they will sometimes leave scratches in the underlying bedrock. And and you see scratches like this at places that they think were at low latitudes hundreds of millions of years ago. And so their reasoning is, oh, this shows that the ice sheets went all the way down to the equator. And so you have this snowball Earth event. Well, the problem with that argument is that these scratches are not an unequivocal diagnostic of glaciers there are other things that can cause those scratches including underwater debris flows and we think those were actually caused by underwater debris flows in the flood so neither the evidence for these more recent ice ages in the Pleistocene or these ancient ice ages long ago is very strong at all we think there's there's really strong evidence for one ice age and you know if you think about it, it makes sense that there should be just one ice age because even explaining one ice age is extremely difficult
1: well, and in two Jake, I think you you make this point in the book of if the artist if if we go with the Milankovitch theory, which says there's a a tilt variation in our axial tilt from twenty two degrees to twenty four degrees uh you have the problem of explaining from a uniformitarian point of view. Why would there be ice all over the earth when the southern hemisphere would obviously be
0: out of phase?
1: Yeah, it would be out of phase. Why do we, yeah. have, why do we have ice in places that would be out of you, – you would expect there to be more ice in the northern hemisphere at, at X time and, and less ice in the southern hemisphere yes. at, at X time. But what, what, what secular models are saying is – are bereft of is an explanation as to why there would be ice in the southern hemisphere's summer. Um, And I think you do a good job of of explaining this anomaly that has no explanation, right?
0: Right. Well, there there are – the thing is there are a lot of things about the Milankovitch theory that really don't make sense. Um, In fact, these changes in sunlight are so small, it's really hard to see how they alone could cause an ice age. In fact, Fred Hoyle – uh, the famous evolutionary uh, astronomer and, and critic of the Big Bang you know he said look this, this, this is ridiculous you know this is like saying you can bring an ice cube into a warm room on a cold winter night and you can induce a glacial in there by bringing an ice cube into the room He said that's how ridiculous this is um, and, and, the, and the truth is there's nothing about the theory really makes sense the, the one thing the one thing the theory had going for it, is a famous paper that was published in 1976 called The Pacemaker of the Ice Ages that purported to give evidence for this Milankovitch Ice Age theory. And the belief in that theory is based pretty much on that paper. And a big part of the research that I've done is showing that there are serious problems with that paper. Um, in fact, I think the, uh, you could argue that they actually falsified the Milankovitch theory. Um, because they actually they shot themselves in the foot by changing a number that was critical to their calculations, and that's something I've spent a lot of time discussing.
2: I, it always struck me as very odd that a scientist would believe in this Milankovitch idea because you have whatever effect that these changes in Earth's tilt and orbit uh, would would be very trivial in its effect on yeah. climate. And I mean, you're talking about things that just change slight angles. It's because of how Earth's orbit precesses and, and oscillates. You know, Earth's orbit changes right. its yeah. shape slightly over time. And then that makes the, the angle that we have with the sun from where we're standing a slightly different. It's just a real, real tiny, slight thing. But because they think of Earth's climate as very... Uh, kind of delicate and kind of balanced on a knife edge, they they think that these little changes could upset the the balance and send it off into a cold uh, cold ice age. But uh, but from a, a creation point of view, there's actually a very logical explanation for an ice age for one ice age, because it's a combination of having a warmed ocean because of how the flood happened. It heats the ocean and then you have volcanism putting uh, uh, gases and other materials up in the atmosphere that reduces the light levels. So you have a cold atmosphere and a warm ocean, and that sits off a chain of rain and snow that keeps going for years. And and so that's the the idea, right? Am I getting that right, Jake?
0: Yeah, that's it. That's it. And there's some, yes, I mean, that's correct. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. These volcanic eruptions... They cause cooler summers, but not necessarily cooler winters. And when you get into the details of an ice age, that's an important point. Because when you have really cold winters, you actually get less snow, not more. So the fact that it's the summers that are being cooled and keeping the snow and ice from melting in the summer, that's important. That's a big deal. Um, And, of course, the volcanic eruptions, you know, this would have kept on going for hundreds of years after the flood. And these aerosols that you end up in uh, end up in the stratosphere, they fall out fairly quickly. But because you're having this sporadic residual volcanism, more aerosols are being put up into the atmosphere. But eventually, that volcanism is going to decay down to a whisper, if you will. The oceans are going to cool off, and you're going to the ice age is going to come to an end. And so, this is one area where the creation model really um, is, it does a really good job of explaining the data. And, uh, and the, you, made a, you made a point, uh, Wayne, you know, the argument about – if, if you talk to the experts on the climate change debate, they will tell you. And this is true regardless of whether you're a quote-unquote warmest, you know, who's worried about out-of-control warming or you're one of these lukewarm guys who doesn't think it's a big deal. Regardless of your position, everybody agrees that the core issue in the climate change debate is something called equilibrium climate sensitivity. If you were to double the amount of atmospheric carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the temperatures are going to increase a little bit, but not much, assuming that everything else stays the same. But the the climate system is complicated. You've changed one thing, something else is going to change. And so there's going to be these feedbacks, they can either amplify uh, those that warming and give you an out of control effect, or could kind of bring everything back to equilibrium.
2: What is what is the effect of clouds? And I'm I'm kind of interested in, you know, what can the scientific models that are trying to model climate change, uh, do they really work in understanding what's going to happen to the you know, they talk about the global average temperature of the earth and and uh Clouds are something they have trouble with modeling. Is that right?
0: That's exactly right. And that's why the work that my PhD advisor at the University of Texas at Dallas is so important. Now, I don't want to misrepresent him. He's not a creationist. He doesn't agree with my creation views. And he thinks global warming is real, but he doesn't think it's something to panic over. So I want to make sure I don't misrepresent his position, but but everybody agrees that one of the big uncertainties in the climate models are clouds they're a wild card because depending on the altitude the latitude the size of the droplets they could either give you a warming or a cooling effect and it's not obvious what that effect is going to be you know there's another guy out there who a, a danish physicist named heinrich Svensmark, who basically says when you get more cosmic rays you get more clouds and they cool the earth and uh My advisor at UTD, Dr. Brian Tinsley, he thinks that's way too simplistic and I I agree with him. Uh, But basically, you know, if we're going to get better climate models, we've got to have a better understanding of what's going on inside the clouds. And that's exactly uh, what my advisor was working on. He's looking at cloud microphysics and he's arguing there's something going on that they're not taking into account. And it involves something called the global electric circuit. And um, He thinks that's the link between cosmic rays, solar activity, and weather and climate. And the evidence that's been accumulated for this is really impressive. Uh, he, He was working on that probably about for 20 years before I started working for him. And he had multiple working hypotheses about what the true connection could be. And by process of elimination, he pretty much eliminated everything else. And the global electric circuit was the only thing left. Uh, he made a pre- he kind of made a prediction. I don't know if he put it in print, but when I started working for him, uh, there's the, there's this current that co- electrical current that comes down from the ionosphere. It's not lightning. It's what we call a fair weather electrical current, and it's about a thousand amps worldwide, but it's spread out over the entire surface of the Earth. So if you're looking at a square meter, you're looking at a tiny tiny current. You know, trillions of an ampere per square meter. But when that electrical current density passes through a cloud, it leaves charge on the upper layer of the cloud and on the lower layer. And that's just basic electricity and magnetism. Well, it turns out that's going to affect the rates at which these um, cloud droplets scavenge or gobble up these aerosols. And that ultimately has an effect on the size of the droplets, which has an effect on cloud lifetime and how much light gets reflected by the clouds and so there's very he thinks there's a connection there and that this is the correct the correct link that people have been looking for for really uh, probably 150 years now um but interestingly enough he's getting a lot of pushback because even though he's a secular guy even though he believes in global warming there is this reluctance to acknowledge that there's something going on that they're not taking into account in their models and um So it's something. It's really interesting.
1: That's fascinating, Jake. And I think this is along the lines of what you were just explaining. Um, There has been talk of a connection between uh, the the cold weather patterns that we see on Earth and sunspots. Is that connected to what you're saying? Yes. Basically, the sun goes through cycles of, of solar activity that are triggered by what astronomers call sunspots. And there seems to be, of late, some interest in the possibility that low sunspot activity leads to uh, lower temperatures on Earth. Like, for example, is there some connection between the snow apocalypse we just had here in Texas and uh, the the minimum solar activity going on? Is this part of uh, part of the research that you're talking about?
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, I don't know if you can if you're talking about worldwide i don't know if we can say yet whether it would be a cooling effect but in the northern hemisphere yes there seems to be a connection um there you know back during the little ice age uh which was a time where uh, you know it was cooler cooler temperatures but there was a particularly cold part of that called the maunder minimum and it was very low sunspot activity for a long time and it got really cold in europe you had Frost fairs out on the Thames River. I mean, it got so cold, the Thames River froze, and people would have fairs out on the ice. What my advisor thinks the connection is. Um, again, it's all related to this current density that's coming down from the ionosphere. Now, the current you know you may remember from high school physics the equation V equals IR. You know, voltage equals current times resistance. Well we have something we have something very similar to that when you're talking about this current density that's coming down from the ionosphere. Basically that current density depends on the ion, the, the, the voltage between the ionosphere and the earth which can vary. that it typically is around 250,000 volts, but it can go be higher or lower. And it depends on the conductivity of the air, through which that current density is passing. And so things like aerosols, air, if you have pollutants, they cause the conductivity to go down. But if you have cosmic rays, the cosmic rays cause there to be more ions. And you know, There's a shower of charged particles that are produced when these cosmic rays slam into the atmosphere, and that increases the electrical conductivity. And so what happens is if you have a period of very low solar activity... You're going to have a lot of cosmic rays getting through, and the conductivity of the atmosphere should be higher, and so that current density should be higher, especially at higher latitudes. Okay, you're going to see more variation at the higher latitudes. Well, what we think is going on is that you're, uh, we, you can. There's a chain of reasoning you can use to show that when that current density becomes larger that winter cyclones in the northern high latitudes should become more intense. And I actually, that was what my PhD research was on. I found evidence of this from two independent data sets. And I found preliminary evidence from a third data set. Okay, but it was a kind of a quickie rush job. Uh, I didn't have time to really do a proper analysis because about that time is when ICR hired me. But we found evidence from at least two independent data sets uh, that this is happening. Well, what happens is when those cyclones, those are low-pressure systems, when they become more intense, high-pressure systems downstream also become more intense. And you have these things called blocking events, and they can be stationary, and they can prevent warm uh, westerly air from reaching the European continent, and so you get these cooler temperatures, and we think that's got something to do with what's going on. And at these times, the jet stream—you know—the jet stream is normally kind of west to east. Well, it becomes much more north to south at those times. And I think there may be a there probably. I don't want to be dogmatic about this. Um, I, I don't know if I've got enough data to be dogmatic, but I strongly, strongly suspect that the snow acop- apocalypse that we had in February is connected to this, because about that time, if our if there were about 14 days where the sunspot zero was not zero, 14 consecutive days, and, uh, you know, when you're having low, a fewer, much more cosmic rays coming through, um, that current density is going to be higher, and, Let's suppose, let's suppose that the current density is real let's suppose that there's a lot of cosmic rays getting through, like you got a lot of conductivity in the atmosphere. And what if the ionospheric potential should be especially high too? Well that current density is gonna be really high. And so you know you might get a, a dramatic intensification of these storms. And which is going to cause these blocking events downstream, and so I do believe, and I, but I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but I think there very much was a connection between the snowmageddon that we had in February and and, and this 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 mechanism.
2: We didn't talk much about ice cores and ice sheets. You know, people think about ice cores and ice layers in, in uh or Greenland or or the North. Uh, around the North Pole or South Pole, you think of layers of ice as kind of like layers of rock, right? And that when you have many layers, that means it's very old. So what do you, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, uh, the argument, it turns out yeah, there's two answers to that argument. You have to look at the Greenland ice cores and the Antarctic ice cores separately because there's two different answers to that question. Uh, the Antarctic cores are easiest easiest to explain now the antarctic cores they they've assigned very old ages to those ice cores. Uh, there are three deep ice cores from Antarctica that are that where they've assigned ages at the bottom of the bottom of the core, not necessarily the very not necessarily at bedrock, but as, when they when they stopped drilling, they assigned ages of four hundred thousand seven hundred thousand and eight hundred thousand years. To those three ice cores now at first glance that looks very intimidating it looks like a strong argument for an old earth but it turns out that you cannot see annual layers uh, in the well you can't really see layers at all or at least not consistently in the antarctic ice because the snowfall annual snowfall is too low and it's too windy so you cannot distinguish these bands very well in antarctica so they are dependent on these theoretical age models to assign ages to the those ice cores. Well, those age models implicitly assume millions of years because they treat the height of the ice sheet as more or less constant. They completely ignore the time that it takes for the ice sheet to form. Now, now, now how do you justify that? Well, the only way you can justify doing that is if the I if because you know, there's going to be some error. If you're ignoring the time it took for the ice sheet to form, there's going to be some error. But if you believe that ice sheet is millions of years old, what's, you know, say 10,000 years or so, or a few thousand years for that ice sheet to form? The error is negligible. So it makes the math much easier for them, but it's only justified if you believe those ice sheets are millions of years old. It, If they're only 4,500 years old, if they've only existed since the time after the flood, you cannot safely ignore the time it takes for the ice to form. Okay, so their models implicitly assume millions of years.
2: Okay, so it's kind of a circular. It is reasoning they have there. So, yes. So you you were talking about Antarctica. Let's talk about Greenland yes. a little bit yes. because I wanna I want to get into a story that you have in your book. <laughs> oh, it's a Fascinating yeah. oh, thing. Oh yes. Yes. There, yes. Back in nineteen back in nineteen forty two, there was a whole group of World War Two planes, some P thirty eight fighter planes, and I think some bombers that that had to crash land in Greenland. Right. Right. And so they were. They landed on the ice in Greenland, and uh, they were left there. Right now, so then a long time later, um, in 1992. So now that's 50 years later. Uh, somebody is digging through the ice they were doing drilling through the ice for something they were going to they they, were trying
0: to find the planes they they were specifically looking oh they were were. okay i didn't i thought they were looking for something else okay no no they were looking for the planes they were actually looking for the planes And they found it, but they were under like 250 feet of ice that had accumulated in 50 years.
2: Yeah, 250, 60 feet of ice that accumulated in 50 years. Yes. So if if it can accumulate like that in normal conditions, what could happen uh, in the time after Noah's flood and the changes that happened then?
0: Yes. Now, to be fair, the evolutionists have criticized us for making that argument because – the the place where those planes landed is in the southeast of Greenland, and there's a huge amount of snowfall there. Now, the deep Greenland cores are in central Greenland, where the snowfall is not as great, and so they've criticized this and they've said, "Well, you're you're making an apples to oranges comparison. You can't really use that example to prove uh, that ice ice sheets can form rapidly." And and they have a point, but I think they're overlooking a bigger point. We are arguing that during the Ice Age, snowfall rates were much, much higher than they are today. And we're arguing that even in central Greenland, the snowfall rates were much higher. I mean, that is a logical consequence when you have a much warmer ocean. And so we think the kind of snowfall that you're seeing in southeast Greenland today is an example of the kind of snowfall you had in central Greenland during the Ice Age. So if you keep that larger part point in mind, I think it's still a valid comparison, okay? If you've got heavy snowfall, ice sheets can form rapidly. And the evolutionists know this. You know, they don't say that the ice sheets are millions of years old because they think ice sheets need millions of years to form. That's just part of their overall old earth story. Even the evolutionists admit that ice sheets can form, you know, they would say roughly in 10,000 years even if you assume that the snowfall rates have only been a, have never been higher than they are now, but not not too surprisingly, the higher the snowfall rates, the shorter the time for the ice sheet to form. And you can tell and we think you can telescope that time down to 4,500 years uh, if you've got you know if you've got heavy snowfall, uh, you know, like starting out you know maybe ten tens of meters per year, you can get you can get these thick ice sheets to form rapidly. And so in that sense I think it's still a valid comparison. Okay, it all de- it all depends on how fast the snow is coming down. That's that's the big that's the big factor.
1: Okay, so that that would lead that's fantastic. That would lead me to the question Jake, the, the something that that gets touted quite frequently in the popular literature when you see articles about climate science and global warming you see these dramatic pictures of glaciers breaking apart and, uh, you know, some of the before and after shots of 10 years ago of ice sheets being dramatically smaller by a certain percentage. And, and this is sort of the clickbait for, um, you know, climate change. Look at how all of this ice is melting. Therefore, the sea levels will rise. Therefore, your carbon footprint, stop eating beef, stop driving your car. What is going on with glacier melting and breaking apart? Just a, a natural process? Is this something to be concerned about? Is this really what climate science and climate change um, advocates are, are, should, should, should really be concerned about? And What's
0: going on there? The, the key issue here, and as I said before, both sides in the debate agree on this. The key issue is what is called equilibrium climate sensitivity. Is our climate stable or is it unstable? Now, what are the arguments for a stable climate? Well, uh, people have done, you know, there's a, 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 an atmospheric scientist named Judith Curry, <clears throat> and she and a guy named Nick Lewis a while back did some brute force physics calculations to try to calculate the climate sensitivity directly, which is really the right way to do it because there you're not being influenced about, uh, by beliefs about the past. And they found climate sensitivity was low. Uh, Now, what's another argument? You can even make a theological argument for low climate sensitivity. If our planet was designed by a loving creator who's concerned about us, you might expect that he would have built feedbacks into the climate system to keep things from going uh, too far to extremes, okay? Now, Now, what about the other side? What's the evidence for an unstable climate? Well, one of the main arguments is the Milankovitch Ice Age Theory. And the reason for that is because remember how we said that these changes in sunlight are so tiny and it's hard to see how they alone could cause an ice age? Well, the secular scientists realize this and so they've convinced themselves that our climate system can amplify those tiny changes in sunlight to bring about dramatic climate change. And so therefore, based on their belief about the past, They say climate sensitivity has to be high, and I can show you statements by uh, people on that side of the debate who will tell you they know, and I put that word know in air quotes, climate sensitivity has to be high because otherwise the Milankovitch theory doesn't work. Now, what I'm arguing is I don't think they've got any good evidence for the Milankovitch theory, even if you believe in the millions of years. Their evidence for that theory is incredibly shaky. And if you want to be really hard-nosed about it, you could argue that the theory has already been falsified. Thanks for listening to another episode of Good Heavens, a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit watchman.org today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.